Good morning. Our scripture readings come from Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to hear to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for the Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall, shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. want to welcome our Zoomers. Hi, everybody. And um, uh, that probably includes those who aren't feeling well today or traveling. So thanks for joining us. Wanted to welcome our friends from uh, True Love Church. Thanks for joining us, guys. You uh, doubled our attendance. We appreciate that. So we could schedule that next week. This would be wonderful. Uh, no, they're here. They're, they're in Leona Valley for a retreat, and they decided to join us this morning for worship. So um, we're glad and honored to have them. And uh, so before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, it was great to sing about your holiness, to, to imagine what the, uh, the eternal state will be when we're with uh, all of our friends and loved ones in Christ in heaven, praising you and calling out your name and recounting your greatness. Um, Lord, we get a glimpse of it here, but to, to be there and to experience it in full. And Lord, that's only possible because of Christmas, because you came and you took on flesh and you died in our place. So thank you for coming for us. Thank you for seeking us. And thank you for saving us. Uh, this morning, Lord, I want to pray for True Love Church and their, their retreat. We pray that whatever they've accomplished so far in their retreat, that uh, you would bless that, that that would be a, an encouragement to the souls of the saints who are serving, uh, that you would increase the ministry of the church and, and just bless them through the, the uh, time that they've spent away um, to, uh, to be together and to focus on, on you and what it is you're calling them to do. And we just pray your blessing on that church, Lord. I also want to pray for those that we caroled to last night as we went through the Fordham's neighborhood and, and sang Christmas carols. Uh, every year it just amazes me that we get to stand on somebody's porch and sing about the incarnation and, and sing it to their doors, and people appreciate it. They like that. So uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, those who know you were encouraged, those who don't know you, Lord, maybe they'll think about some of the lyrics they heard or what the meaning of Christmas is. But, uh, Lord, would you be glorified in all that we've done there as well. And uh, Father, I want to pray for uh, peace on earth. Um, and uh, Lord, we, 
We pray for uh, the ongoing struggle in Israel and in Gaza. Uh, Lord, we pray for the innocent victims uh, who were slaughtered in Israel, the, the innocent victims who are dying in uh, Gaza. Lord, we just pray that you would bre break the uh, hold of uh, Hamas and that uh, no more innocent people would have to die. So, Lord, would you bring peace to that region and stability? Um, have mercy on them, we ask. And, uh, Lord, now as we turn to your word and uh, reflect on, on what it is that John the Baptist uh, tells us about Jesus, Lord, would you be with us and help us to see and understand and to grasp what it is that you have to say this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if you haven't noticed, English is a really weird language. Uh, it started out with the Anglo-Saxons and Germanic influences, and then it picked up some French because they switched the language in England to France for a while, and then they switched it back, and then it picked up some uh, Latin influences and some Greek influences, and it's just a, a mess. It, it's just a mess to study. It's something better learned as a child, I think. And one of the weird things, one of the broken parts of English is our nouns. We have something called defective nouns. And what that means is they don't follow the rules. They don't follow the patterns of normal nouns. And this was one of the things in seminary in Greek and Hebrew that drove me insane was here's the rules. And we'd learn the rules. And they go, okay, now these don't follow it. So, but they're rules. They have to follow it. Not realizing, well, English does the same. So there are nouns that have no singular form, like scissors or pants or glasses. There's no pant or Scissor. What's a scissor? Um, those are called um, plure, plurale tantum is the technical term for that. Um, a, uh, that only exists in a plural form. Um, there are other nouns that have no plural form, like information or baggage or merchandise. Um, and those are called singularia tantum. They're singular only. And then there's um, the irregular plurals which can be either plural or singular depending on their usage, words like aircraft or bison or moose. What I found was that a lot of animals followed that one, but there's no way to tell just by saying bison, is it one or is it many? You have to read it in context. So this is how weird English is, and it's not just English, by the way. Greek just about broke my brain, too, because of this. So there, there can be these forms that take singular or plural forms. Um, for example, in Hebrew and in Greek both, the word for Sabbath can be singular or plural. You have to read it in context to determine which one it is. Um, what we're going to see this morning as we look at John the Baptist in the context of Isaiah 40 is we're not going to come across irregular words like that, but we're going to see a word that we have to read it in context to understand is it talking about one thing or many things. So it's, it's kind of a, a, an interesting way to do it, and hopefully... I won't have, you know, violated the text to do that. I think the, the context really supports what we're about to look at. So Isaiah 40. Um, Isaiah was a prophet primarily to, the nor to uh, Jerusalem, but he, he preached to the northern ten tribes and to the south, southern two tribes, and he, he, he spent uh, time preaching at both of them. And in um, Isaiah 40, he says something that's really incredible. He talks with these words of comfort and, and support and love. Listen to how it begins. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So Isaiah is called to preach to Jerusalem this message of tender care. God is done. The warfare is over. You are settled. You're safe. You're secure. Your iniquity is forgiven. 
And that's what he's told to preach them, that comfort them. Now, here's the problem. Isaiah is preaching, while Isaiah is preaching, the northern tribes are being probably troubled, attacked, maybe invaded by Assyria. And within a few years, they're going to be carried away. The northern ten tribes will be carried away by the Assyrians. But that's not Jerusalem. Well, it's only a couple hundred years after that when the Babylonians show up and they lay siege to Jerusalem. They tear down the walls and they invade the city and they carry the people away. There's no peace or comfort for them. Their warfare hasn't ended then. So they're in exile in Babylon for 70 years in captivity. And finally, the 70 years is up and they're told to return. And so the exiles return and they start rebuilding the temple and start rebuilding the walls. But when they're rebuilding, Nehemiah says they had to have a spear in one hand and a trowel in the other as they rebuild the walls because their enemies were threatening to destroy them constantly. So they still didn't have any peace. There was still no security. The warfare hadn't ended. But as Israel returned and rebuilt Jerusalem and began to repopulate the land and settle in, it seems like maybe this is it. But it's not too long after that when Antioch Epiphanes shows up. He was a descendant of Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died, his kingdom split into four. Antioch Epiphanes was one of them. He took over Jerusalem. And his, his agenda was we need to eradicate Hebrew culture and establish uh, Greek culture. So he went into the temple and he violated the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. Jerusalem didn't have any peace. They were still at war. As a matter of fact, shortly after that, the Maccabean revolt starts. And that's where they tried to rise up and throw the Greeks out and have this big revolt and, and throw them away. It's really interesting that this time of year that we cel they celebrate Hanukkah because Hanukkah happened during that time. After the, the temple was, uh, was defiled, they didn't have the holy oil to burn in the, in the lamps that were in the temple. They only had a day's worth. But they had to go seven days to purify the, the oil. And so they spent seven days purifying this oil. And the one days of oil never burned out. That's, that's the Feast of Hanukkah. That's what they celebrate. That's because of Antiochus Epiphanes. They still haven't had peace. By the time Jesus and John the Baptist are born, it's no longer the Greeks. The Greek empire has faded. The Romans have taken over. And they're ruling over all of it. And don't forget, there's still no peace there. Um, Herod the Great wound up slaughtering the innocent, innocent, in, <laughs> the innocent infants. See, English is broke. I'm telling you, it's not my fault. <laughs> he goes in and he does that. And, and not too long after Jesus and John the Baptist, the Romans are going to circle the city and flatten it, destroy it. Even today, there's no peace in, in Jerusalem. They're still warring over it. There's a mosque sitting where the temple should be. It, there's constant fighting in there. There's constant struggle. So did Isaiah's prophecy fail? Comfort. Comfort my people. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. Or is it just that's not fulfilled yet? It's not that time. Well, it's, it's a troubling scenario, but we're supposed to have these comforting words. And so let's listen to what Isaiah continues to tell us. He'll give us a clue when this is going to happen, when this, this kind of thing is going to be fulfilled. So the next section starts with a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this is the promise of this peace and this prosperity, this, this, this settledness that's going to come to Jerusalem will be when, the, when their God shows up. He's going to come in. Now, this particular verse, this is why we chose this for Advent with John the Baptist, is all four Gospels attribute this prophecy to John the Baptist. 
It's rare when all four Gospels do something. They do this with John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, in, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist attributes this to himself. He recognized this was him. He's the voice. Now, there's a punctuation problem here. There's a punctuation question here. In the Hebrew, both the way John read it and the way I just read it, um, it says, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. So the way it reads is, the way of the Lord is in the wilderness, and a voice is crying. When you look at the New Testament, all four examples in the New Testament, what it says is, a voice cries in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So the voice is in the wilderness, not the way. So which one is it? Well, here's the simple answer. In the original text, neither he Greek or Hebrew use punctuation. So we have to infer the punctuation to figure it out. Um, and so the way the, the Hebrew is structured, it seems like the wilderness is in the, or the, uh, the, the way to prepare is in the wilderness. But in the Greek, it sounds more like it's the voice in the wilderness. Um, that includes the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament that took place between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. It translated it as a voice in the wilderness. So I'm going to go with the New Testament interpretation. I'm assuming that the New Testament authors got it right. The voice is in the wilderness. So there is a voice in the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the highway. Build this smooth path. And from what we understand, that is John the Baptist. John the Baptist shows up and he's preaching. Now, it took me a second to, to retool my brain. It's not John the Baptist preparing the way. It's John the Baptist calling and saying, prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Get ready for this. And so that's, that's what the picture is. So how do we understand this? How do we understand what he's talking about? How do we understand how this ties to the peace and the prosperity of Jerusalem? Well, I think there are two important words in, in verse 3 that we have to understand, and then it will help us understand the context better. The first is wilderness, and the second is prepare. So why did John go into the wilderness? Why did he show up and go out away from the cities, out by the Jordan, baptizing people, the wild man in skins and eating locusts and honey, why did he do that? Why didn't John show up and head right to the power centers of uh, Israel? He could have gone into the temple and met with the Sanhedrin. That was the council of 70 who ruled Israel. They were allowed to rule in religious matters primarily. Why didn't John the Baptist go into the temple and meet the Sanhedrin and say, okay, you guys, look, we need to prepare the way of the Lord. We have got to get our religion cleaned up. We've got to sort out this priest problem. We've got to get some good priests in here. The people don't understand. We have to make sure that people understand what the law is better. And, boy, we need to get everybody in synagogue on Saturday. I mean, we, this is something we need to work on. John didn't do that. Well, why didn't he go to Herod? Now, by the time John and Jesus are, are on the scene, Herod the Great has passed away, and his kingdom is split uh, between uh, a couple of sons and some other people to rule over parts of Israel. But it was still Herod. He could have gone to Herod who was uh, kind of the civil leader, uh, a Jew, but really raised in Roman culture. He could have gone to, um, to Herod and said, look, Herod, we need to get some stuff sorted out. Uh, the taxation is too high on the people. You know what? We, we don't have adequate uh, safety on some of the roads. We've got to improve some of the safety that we've got on the roads. We need to get the Zionists, the, these people who are or the zealots, rather, who are trying to overthrow everything. But we need to have peace. We need to get this stuff sorted out. We need uh, uh, to get this stuff prepared because the Lord's coming. That's what we need to do. Is, and he didn't go to Herod. He didn't go to Pilate's praetorium. He didn't go to the ruler. So 
Herod ruled over part and Pilate ruled over part, but Pilate ruled over everything. He was the Roman designate, the governor of that whole area. And so John the Baptist didn't go to Pilate and say, oh, hey, Pilate, your, your soldiers are being really rough on our people and you need to sort that out. And we need a roads project. We need a public works project to get some of these roads fixed and, and trade up. And boy, we really need a dip break on their taxes. Our taxes are way too high. He didn't do any of that. That was not what it meant to prepare the way of the Lord. So it wasn't to go to the power structure, the power centers of culture at that time and try to persuade them that they need to the, uh, prepare the way of the Lord. Instead, what John did was he was in the wilderness. He was specifically away from all of those things. So it wasn't like all of Jerusalem was gonna get up and go out and proceed to uh, John the Baptist with their leaders in front and the whole city coming or anything like that. It was individuals from, from uh, Jerusalem. People would come out and go, I heard about this wild man out in the wilderness, and I, I think he might be a prophet. He might be the prophet, or he might be Elijah. Who knows? Let's go see who he is. And so the people would come out from the cities, from Jerusalem, from Bethany, from Bethsaida, from all of those areas around. They would come out, and they would meet with John because he was in the wilderness, because he was not addressing directly power. He was addressing individuals. So that's the first thing. Why the wilderness? Because of who John was appealing to. He was appealing to individuals, not power structures, not institutions, not officials, but to individuals. So then the second one is, why prepare? Why the word prepare? What, is, what does prepare look like? What is it supposed to be? Well, prepare the way of the Lord is to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So to prepare this, this road, but it's more than that. He goes on to explain the prophecy does in the next verse. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. Uneven ground shall be made level and the rough places plain. Notice that John the Baptist did not go out into the wilderness as a civil engineer and start a public works project to pave a road into Jerusalem. That, that's not what that means. So what is he talking about with the valleys lifted up and the mountains laid low? Well, if I understood the word wilderness correctly, that he's appealing to individuals, not institutions, not... not um, uh, officials, not society, that kind of thing, but to individuals, then these valleys and hills must be individuals. So what does he mean by every valley must be lifted up? Well, he's announcing that the Lord is coming. He's saying, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is going to be coming in. So you, you individuals who are low, your valleys, you're sunken in, you think that you are so bad that God could never come to you. You think that you're so unworthy that God could never, ever save you. He would never appeal to you. That, that this position of, of uh, influence and in, in, in a place in the synagogue and, and a, a prominent place in work, that's not for you. You're going to go hide in the back if you even show up because you have such a low value of yourself. You, you think that you're beyond salvation. There's no way God could come for me. Do you know what I've done? Do you know who I've been? God can't come for me. That, that's impossible. There's no way he could do that. That valley needs to be filled in. God is coming. He is coming for you. He's coming for individuals. There's nobody too low that they can't be saved. That's the valley that needs to be filled in. You need to see yourself appropriately. You need to see yourself as God sees you. He's coming for you. Then the, the hills and the, uh, the mountains and the hills. Well, that's pretty obvious then. There are people who have got it all. I've got the power, I've got the position, I've got the looks, 
I got the car, I got um, whatever it is that makes me feel like I'm complete. I don't really need God. He's, you know, he's a nice guy. You know, we nod at each other as we pass in the hallway, but I don't need him. That needs to come down. There's nobody who is so good they're beyond needing salvation. And so those hills, those valleys need to come, or those hills need to come down. They need to be humble. They need to, to, to lay low. And that's, that's really what's going on here is, is the preparing of the way of the Lord is saying nobody is beyond salvation and nobody is not in need of salvation. You all need the Lord. This warfare that you've experienced that's been on Jerusalem that continues to be on, that's not just for the, the common people. That's for the exalted people. And it's not just deserved by the common people. It's deserved by everybody. You all need to prepare as the Lord is coming. And so that's why John's mission when he went was he was out in the wilderness and he was baptizing. Now, at the time when John was baptizing, that was a huge insult to Israel because baptism in that context was often used for Gentiles converting to Israel, to, uh, to, uh, um, to Judaism, becoming Israelites. They would have to be circumcised. They would have to go through ritual washing because Gentiles are dirty. We don't have anything to do with them. They have to be washed to be brought in. And so that's why when they talk about um, uh, baptism, they said, or why don't you wash your hands in the New Testament? And, and what they would do is they would go to the market and they would shop and they would bring things home and then they would wash their hands before they did anything and wash everything they brought, not because of germs, but because of Gentiles. So this idea that John is going to stand in the wilderness and go, come and be baptized for the remission of your sins. I'm a Jew. I don't need to be baptized. What is going on? That's that, that mountain being brought down. That's why he was in the wilderness. That's why he's calling out as this voice saying, come. It's he's, he's humbling everybody, getting them ready for what's coming. So what's coming? What, what is going to be coming down this road that they prepare? What is the, the thing that's going to arrive in Jerusalem? The next verse says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So what is coming into this Jerusalem, that what is coming on this road that, that John is, is leveling out will be the glory of the Lord. All of who God is, all of his majesty, all of his wrath, all of his fury, all of his kindness, all of his mercy, all of who he is, is coming down this road to be revealed. For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. It shall be shown. And to who? To, to only the important people? No, all flesh shall see it. All flesh, everybody, the mighty, the powerful, the rich, the, the important people, the, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the publicans, the, all the outcasts, the, the lepers, all of those, all flesh shall see it. All the, the people in power, all the people oppressed, men and women. The shocker is Jew and Gentile. All flesh shall see this glory of the Lord. Well, how can we know? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And how has the mouth of the Lord spoken it? First of all, he spoke it through Isaiah. Isaiah said these things. He wrote them down. Then he has John the Baptist show up, and John the Baptist says these things. So the Lord, the mouth of the Lord speaks through John the Baptist. So this is what we're preparing for. This is the highway that we're preparing. This is what's going to come in is the fullness, the glory of God. So now the next section of the prophecy really has to do with that idea of humbling again. And I think we need to hear it twice because we're not really good at it. So listen to this next section. 
a voice says cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. So here's the picture. Is the, Isaiah is told, make this announcement. And this, by the way, is, is quoted in the New Testament as well. Peter quotes this, but all flesh is grass. So what he's saying here is, is he says two things. All flesh is grass. Grass is one of the most successful organisms on the planet. It grows everywhere. It is every place. It's not just in my front yard. It's everywhere. It's extraordinarily common. And so you could say, well, all flesh is grass. It's very common. It's usual. It's nothing, nothing fancy. Nothing stands out. It's mundane. We're used to it. We see it all the time. But he says, and its glory, its beauty, rather, is like a flower of the field. So life is that plain, mundane stuff that goes by every day, the stuff that you don't remember. Like, what did you have for lunch two years ago? Odds are you don't remember. That's, that's part of the grass, the plain stuff. But life is also filled with beauty. There's majestic things as well. There's the flower of the field. Jesus points to it and says, even Solomon was not dressed like that. That there are moments of, these, of beauty in this life as well. But what Isaiah is being told to remind us is the grass withers and the flower fades. This life that we experience, the mundane and the beautiful, the great and the, and the bad, it's not permanent and it goes. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, both in Greek and in Hebrew, the word for breath, the Hebrew word for breath and the Greek word for breath are also the same word for spirit. So when the spirit moves upon this, this is what humanity is like as we're temporary. And when the Lord blows, when, when the Lord determines it, we fade and we're gone. So don't get too comfortable with this idea that I have it all. Um, I, it, I've been really surprised in my uh, older age what I had as a, as a youth and what I had lost as, a, as an, oh, no, a more mature man. What's the better word for that? There's got to be a better way to say that. Um, a more seasoned man, I guess. Um, used to be able to eat anything I want, anytime I want, day or night, be fine, and now pizza will kill me if I have that after 7 p.m. So you just, these things are not permanent. This, this life that you have now is not going to last forever when it's great and when it's poor, when, when things are going your way and when they're not. It's just not going to happen. But he reminds us in verse 8, the word of the Lord stands forever. We're temporary. We come and go. But the word of the Lord, is, it stands forever. So when we talk about being humble, when I say that we have to humble ourselves, usually when we think in English of humble, we mean somebody who thinks they're too much. You just need to you know, come down a couple of notches. You need to come down a little bit. But being humble can also mean that those lower people need to step up a bit. They need to see themselves rightly. So my definition of being humble is to see ourselves as God sees us. And God doesn't see us as these people are worthy of my salvation and these people are not. Jesus comes for everyone. All flesh shall see it. And so this is a healthy reminder here. Hey, grass, you're not that way forever. Hey, flower, you're not going to last forever. But the word of the Lord will. And so there's this promise of permanence in the midst of this. So let's align ourselves with the word of the Lord. That's going to last forever. So then what is it? Those of us who have humbled ourselves as we prepare the way of the Lord, then what's coming? What's going to arrive? And that's the last section, verses 9 through 11. 
Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his right arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. So who, what's coming? This, this robe we've prepared, this glory of the Lord that's coming, what does it look like? It looks like this. We are told that he will be coming with might. His, his, his strength will be in one hand and his recompense will be in the other. His reward will be in one hand, his recompense will be the other. So this is, this is that picture of Jesus standing and saying, the sheep on the left, the goats on the right. There will be one who receives reward and there will be one who receives re- um, um, recompense, who gets what they deserve. This is what the Lord is going to do when he comes. This is why I think it's really important to understand that beginning as Jerusalem is not a geographical area in the city of Israel or in the nation of Israel. It is not a physical location. It's people. It's individuals. Why? Because he's not going to award or punish all of Jerusalem. He's going to pull people out of Jerusalem and reward or punish them. And so that's the picture of it. But when he comes, will he be a thundering tyrant to everybody? No, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Jesus himself and John said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. So he will tend his flock. He will gather the lambs. Do you get that that comfort? Comfort my people. Here's the comfort. So then what does he mean by Jerusalem? And this is where it goes back to how broken English is, but this doesn't really qualify for that. But it's a good illustration, and it was all I could think of, so we went with it. So what is Jerusalem in this context? Jerusalem, we often think of as just that city, as as that geographical border. But the way the New Testament understands Jerusalem, since the advent of Jesus, since John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, Since that moment, Jerusalem takes on a slightly different theological meaning. And I get that from Galatians chapter 4. Listen to this little verse, this little section of Galatians 4. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Those women were two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So when Paul wrote this, the Jerusalem that he knew was still standing. The Romans had not leveled it yet. That corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So there is a Jerusalem on earth, and then there's a Jerusalem in heaven. There is a Jerusalem from above who is free, not the child of the flesh, Ishmael, but the child of the promise. So that, that's, the, that's one place to see it. Another one is Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, the author says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable, and I can never say this part, innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, that is the church, that's the same word, ecclesia, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, sprinkled, uh, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So where have we come to? The long list of great explanations. We've come to the church, the assembly of the firstborn. 
We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We are the heavenly Jerusalem. And the last place I want to look at is Revelation 21. This one will get me in trouble. Somebody's going to argue with me on this, and I'm, I'm good for it. Um, Revelation 21 is often preached as this is the place we're going to live. The streets of gold and, and all of that stuff. This is the city we're going to inhabit for eternity. I don't think it is, and here's why. This is how, it, how John explains it. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So that he sees the city descending from heaven. But it's prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying pain anymore or former things. They have all passed away. So when he describes the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, he doesn't mention a single person in it. And yet it is they, there. This is the bride of Christ. So I think the new Jerusalem is a, a representation of us, the souls of the righteous who have been called. So when we look at this and we hear John the Baptist going into the wilderness and calling people out to him and saying, repent. And those who repent and those who follow and those who make ready the way, this is the peace that's come on Jerusalem. Not the present Jerusalem. She's a slave. She wasn't going to last. She got scraped clean. The new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of today, it's still a mess. There's still violence and all kinds of other things. But in the church, we have this peace. You have been comforted. Your warfare is ended. Why? Because John pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your warfare is done. The worst they can do is kill you. That's great news because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's, there's no way we can lose. Comfort. Comfort my people. Jerusalem, your iniquity has been pardoned. It's over. This is Advent. This is John the Baptist pointing at Jesus and waiting for him and saying, this is the one you need to prepare for. This is why I think that the prophecy from Isaiah is so important, why it's repeated in all four Gospels, is the context of it is rich. It says a lot about the Jesus who's going to come, the Lamb of God who's going to come and take away the sins of the world. And for us, we can look back. We've got more history. We look back at it and say, thank you, Lord. John's pointing forward. He's coming. We look back and say, he's come. Let's rest in him. Takes humility. So those of us who sometimes think we're smarter or better or stronger or richer or whatever it is than, our, than we actually are, we need to listen to the Lord. And he says, you need salvation. You're not full. You're like grass. The, the stuff you have now is going to burn off. Those of us who think we're so far beyond salvation, there's no way God could have anything to do with me. If you knew my stories, if you knew the things I had done and said, you need to be humble. You need to say, Lord, you're coming for me too. That, that's the beauty of the, the Advent message is He's come for us. He didn't wait till we got it figured out. He's come to save us. Thank you, John, for pointing him out. And thank you, Jesus, for coming. Let's pray. 
Lord, as we celebrate Christmas and, and we recognize the infant in the manger is the God who came in, the one whose, whose highway we prepared by putting aside all the obstacles, all the difficulties that we have in our life that would keep us from you and just watch as you enter in. Lord, we're thankful for that. Thank you for this message. And thank you for John the Baptist preparing that way, announcing that we needed to prepare, prepare the way. Lord, we're grateful for your scriptures and for your birth. Uh, Lord Jesus, be honored, we pray in your name. Amen.